Welcome to Chomping Down the Dietetic Exam, where I, Dietitian Faraz, and you, an awesome person, join forces to chomp down dietetic concepts into digestible bites and provide you with practice questions, rationales, and tips to conquer your dietetic exam, and you will conquer it because you are smart, you are skilled, and you got this. Hit it! Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Chomping Down the Dietetic Exam. So today we'll be covering a lot of management topics, and these are topics by request through the Instagram page at RD Exam Podcast. And the topics that'll be covered will be costs, the effectiveness model, TQM, CQI, and assets and liabilities. So before going into today's topics, I got some really, really exciting news I gotta share with you. So over the years, I've had a lot of podcast listeners and students ask me to develop a program that covers everything you need to know about the RD exam. Well, guess what? That's happened. I've developed a program that's really focused on visual learning, and this program consists of 17 video lectures that cover all four domains and every topic that's relevant to the RD exam. These topics are covered with full explanations, tons of mnemonics, illustrations, animations, tables, and each video lecture also has a pre and post test and a super duper colorful set of corresponding notes. This full program is now available on our website at chompdowndietetics.com. Make sure to check out the program sneak peek video on the website's homepage and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. Okay, so with that being said, Let's go into our first appetizer question. Which of the following is considered to be a fixed cost? A. Ingredients B. Rent C. Food containers D. All of the above Okay, so when we're talking about costs, there are really five terms to keep in mind. Fixed cost variable cost, direct cost, indirect cost, and semi-variable costs. First key point to keep in mind, fixed costs and variable costs are associated with a concept called volume of sales. Direct cost and indirect costs are associated with a concept called cost object. Second key point to keep in mind, Fixed and indirect costs usually involve the same charges. Variable and direct costs usually involve the same charges. This will all make sense as soon as we start talking about the topic, which is right now. So look, we're five episodes in. This is the sixth episode. I think it's time that we open up a restaurant together. Okay, we'll call it What's Poppin' Restaurant. At What's Poppin', we sell anything with the word pop in it. So jalapeno poppers, popcorn chicken, popcorn shrimp, soda pop, popcorn, pop rocks, pop tarts, cake pops. You mention it, we got it. All right, 
we decide we're going to rent a restaurant space to sell all this pop stuff. We contact this guy, let's call him Curly. And he's like, yeah, okay, you can rent my space. Now, let's say the first month we are open, we go every day to the restaurant. We open at 11 a.m., we close at 10 p.m., and we don't get a single customer. Business is non-existent. If that's the case, do we still have to pay the rent? Well, yeah, because Curly doesn't care that we didn't have any customers. We still used Curly's space. We still opened the restaurant every day. We still made our food at the restaurant every day. We still farted at the restaurant every day. We gotta pay Curly, okay? This rent is an example of a fixed cost. Fixed costs are there no matter what, regardless of sales volume. They're fixed, aka constant. They're not going anywhere. In other words, fixed costs aren't affected by changes in the volume of sales. You're going to spend money on fixed costs no matter what. Examples could include mortgage, insurance, taxes. These costs are all fixed, meaning they don't change, and they will be there as long as we have the restaurant. Now, let's say we start the second month of our What's Poppin' restaurant. We're getting a ton of customers now, and our most popular item is actually our popcorn chicken. Since we're selling a lot of popcorn chicken, we'll need more raw chicken to cook to keep up with the demand, right? So we can keep selling the popcorn chicken. That raw chicken is considered to be a variable cost. Variable costs increase when sales increase. So the more popcorn chicken that we sell, the more we have to make, aka the more variable costs like ingredients will have. Variable costs decrease when sales decrease. So the less popcorn chicken we sell, the less we have to make, the less variable costs like ingredients will have. Thus, variable costs are affected by changes in the volume of sales and variable costs change in direct proportion to the volume of sales. Okay? Other variable costs could be containers to put the food in, utensils that you pack along with the food. They all depend on the volume of sales. So we just reviewed fixed costs and variable costs, and we've established that they are associated with the concept called volume of sales. Fixed costs aren't affected by changes in the volume of sales. Variable costs are affected by changes in the volume of sales. And variable costs also change in direct proportion to the volume of sales. Now we're going to move on to direct costs and indirect costs, which are associated with a concept called cost object. A cost object is essentially anything you're putting costs into. It could be a product, a service, anything you're putting money into. In our What's Poppin' restaurant, food items that we are selling, like the popcorn chicken, can be considered 
cost objects. Now, anything that contributes directly to the food items we make, like ingredients, containers to put the food in, utensils that you pack along with the food, they all directly contribute to the food items, aka our cost objects. Thus, containers to put the food in, utensils that you pack along with the food, and ingredients may be considered to be direct costs. Wait a minute, dude. Didn't you say containers to put the food in, utensils that you pack along with the food, and ingredients are variable costs? Yes. Yes, I did. This is why we established earlier that variable and direct costs usually involve the same charges. So ingredients, containers, utensils can all be considered both variable and direct costs. Variable because they are affected by changes in the volume of sales and change in direct proportion to the volume of sales. And direct because they do directly contribute to a cost object. Now, does this mean all variable costs are direct costs? No, but most are. And for the purposes of the current episode, we'll leave it at that. However, if you'd like me to cover the rare times when variable costs are not direct costs, let me know and I'll cover it in the future. Now let's look at indirect costs. Indirect costs do not directly contribute to a cost object. They do not. So anything that keeps our restaurant running but doesn't directly contribute to cost objects like the meals we're producing can be considered an indirect cost. So things like rent, mortgage, insurance. Wait a minute. Dude, didn't you say rent, mortgage, and insurance are fixed costs? Yes. Yes, I did. This is why we established earlier that fixed and indirect costs usually involve the same charges. So, rent, mortgage, insurance, they can all be considered both fixed and indirect costs. Fixed because they don't vary with changes in the volume of sales, and indirect because they do not directly contribute to a cost object. Now, does this mean all fixed costs are indirect costs? No, but most are. For the purposes of the current episode, we'll leave it at that. However, just like before, if you want me to cover the rare times when fixed costs are not indirect costs, let me know, and I'll cover that in the future too. Now we have one more category of costs to look at, and that's semi-variable costs. Now, semi-variable costs have both a fixed and a variable cost. A good example for our What's Poppin' restaurant would be utility bills. There's usually a fixed amount that a restaurant has to pay in utilities every month, no matter what. That's the fixed cost. But then depending on how much utilities are used, like for example, how many times you turn on the sink, depends on your sales volume. Since you'll use the sink each time to wash your hands to prepare a meal, 
and the number of meals served will depend on the number of customers we have. So that would be one example of a semi-variable cost. Now let's revisit our question. Which of the following is considered to be a fixed cost? A. Ingredients B. Rent C. Food containers D. All of the above So ingredients, containers to put food in, utensils that you pack, they're all considered to be both variable and direct costs. So right off the bat, ingredients and food containers are eliminated. And since we know those two are incorrect, we can also eliminate choice D, all of the above, leaving us with rent. Rent is a fixed and indirect cost. So how do you remember that fixed and indirect costs usually involve the same charges and variable and direct costs also usually involve the same charges? Okay, well, first, you can look at fixed and indirect costs and just remember that in the word fixed, the second letter after F is I. So that I can stand for indirect. Okay, so fixed and indirect, think of the second letter in fixed, which is I, and that stands for indirect. Now for variable and direct costs, I like to think of it as DMV, with the M standing for meals, because the charges that we described, which were ingredients, containers, and utensils, were both direct costs and variable costs and they were all associated with the meals that we produce. So to remember direct and variable, think of DMV with the M standing for meals. Okay, let's move on to our next topic, which is gonna be the effectiveness model. Okay, here's the appetizer question. You hold a leadership title in a business. An employee was hired one week ago who will be working for you. As a leader, which of the following styles should you use when communicating to the employee? A. Telling B. Selling C. Participating D. Delegating Okay, so let's look at the leadership effectiveness model. So this theory is presented slightly different with alternative terminology or details depending on the source because it's been expanded upon multiple times. Sometimes sources take details from various versions of the theory and they present a mashup. We'll be discussing what you need to know based on what dietetic exams expect you to know. What you'll need to know is telling, selling, participating, and delegating. But before we do that, we have to provide some context. So the idea behind this theory is that as a leader, you need to adapt how you interact with your employees based on their needs, not your preferred style of leadership. Another way to think about this is that 
you change your interaction depending on how ready an employee feels with regards to completing tasks and making decisions. This is called readiness. And there are four levels of readiness. Low readiness, low to moderate readiness, moderate to high readiness, and high readiness. All of these readiness levels are based on two factors that determine what level of readiness an employee is at. The two factors are competence, which is the ability to do a task, and confidence, which is the willingness to do a task. So let's go back to our what's poppin' restaurant. If you have a brand new employee, they will most likely be low on both competence and confidence because they're brand new. So their readiness level would be labeled low readiness. We as managers of the restaurant holding leadership positions would give explicit directions on how to do tasks and what tasks need to be done. We as leaders are making decisions and ordering the employee to complete these tasks in this model. This is called telling. We are telling the employee what to do because they don't know what to do and are not confident with what to do. And we would not trust this employee to do the task alone. Communication is one way at this level. So to summarize, in the low readiness level, the employee has low competence and low confidence. The leader gives explicit directions on how to do tasks. This is called telling. This typically takes place when it's a new employee. As more time passes, the employee will still lack competence because they're still new employees, but the employee will be more confident and willing to try to do the tasks because they've been there for a while, they're just more comfortable. This readiness level is called low to moderate readiness. Usually when an employee is at this level, a question will state something like the employee felt somewhat confident or other words like kind of confident or moderately confident. Anything to signify that the employee is no longer at low readiness, but they're also not at moderate to high readiness, which is the next level, which we'll talk about very soon. Now, some studies say it takes an average of three to six months to feel moderately confident at a new job. Since the employee has some confidence, we as leaders don't need to give explicit directions on how to do these tasks. Instead, what we do is we explain the goals that will be accomplished when an employee finishes the task and we provide reasoning. This is called selling. Because you're selling the task to the employee, you're convincing them why it's important. You're still not comfortable letting the employee make decisions on their own, but you're not as strict as you are when the employee is at low readiness level. 
So to summarize, in the low to moderate readiness level, the employee will have low competence, but will have moderate confidence. The leader explains the goal that will be accomplished when an employee finishes the task and provides reasoning. This is called selling. And this typically takes place when the employee has been in the job from three to six months. Now more time passes and the employee that we hired has become highly competent. So the pressure is building to give the employee more responsibility. However, according to the theory, this can actually result in low confidence for the employee because the prospect of having more responsibility can be threatening. So the employee has shifted to the moderate to high readiness level. The employee now has high competence, low confidence. Since the employee has more competence, we as leaders work with them more and we encourage more decision making with them involved. It's a much more jointed process. We support and encourage the employees more at this stage as well, as opposed to just ordering them to do the tasks like in the first stage. This is called participating, since we as leaders and the employees are working together and participating more together because of the employee's newfound competence. This level could take six months to a year to reach for a new employee. So to summarize, in the moderate to high readiness level, the employee will have high competence, low confidence. The leader supports and encourages the employee more at this stage as opposed to just ordering them to do tasks. This is called participating. This typically takes place when the employee has been in the job six months to a year. Now, let's say one to two years have passed. And at this point, the employee is both highly competent, highly confident. This level is called high readiness. Since the employee is highly competent and highly confident, we as leaders can pretty much take a hands-off approach with this employee, we'll still oversee their work, but decision-making and handling of the tasks is on their own. We can delegate to them. This is called delegating, okay? So to summarize this one, it's the high readiness level in which the employee will have high competence, high confidence. The leader still oversees their work, but decision-making and handling of the tasks is pretty much on the employee. This is called delegating, and it typically takes place when a year to two years have passed for the new employee at their job, because at that point, they are no longer a new employee. They're a seasoned employee. Now, let's revisit our question. You hold a leadership title in a business. An employee was hired one week ago who will be working for you. As a leader, which of the following styles should you use when communicating to the employee? A. Telling. B. 
selling, C, participating, D, delegating. So the key phrase here is that the employee was hired one week ago. So since the employee is a new hired employee, we can assume they will have low competence and low confidence, which will put the employee at the low readiness level. At this level, the leader gives explicit directions on how to do tasks. This is called telling. Thus, telling is the correct answer. If the question had said that the employee was hired five months ago or the employee feels somewhat confident in completing a task, then you would use selling because this would indicate that the employee is in low to moderate readiness level. And participating and delegating you would be able to tell as well based on the time frame that the question is giving you. Okay, so now let's move on to the next topic, which is going to cover TQM and CQI. Okay, here is the appetizer question. Which of the following is most associated with focusing on the organization instead of the individual, and is also more focused on team involvement and data collection. A. TQM B. CQI C. None of the choices listed D. Both TQM and CQI Okay, so TQM stands for Total Quality Management and CQI stands for continuous quality improvement. Both of these concepts at this point have become so synonymous that you see them used interchangeably. And this can be attributed to the fact that CQI is technically a part of TQM and both concepts are super, super similar. However, there are some minute but critical distinctions between the two. We'll start with TQM. TQM is a philosophy where you're constantly trying to improve the processes of your organization, which would lead to improved performance of your organization, which then would lead to improved customer satisfaction. So TQM involves processes improvement, and customer satisfaction. The T in total quality management is very telling because total refers to the idea that TQM requires everyone in the organization to be involved in responding to the needs of the customer. Everyone contributes in some way. This includes employees, and TQM encourages employees to be involved in pinpointing problems, finding solutions for these problems, and in doing so, the organization's overall performance will improve. Management specifically is responsible for facilitating and supporting employee growth. 
which empowers employees to use their best abilities and improve their weaknesses. Now, this is an important aspect that should be highlighted. Management is responsible for making sure employees are growing. An example of this could be management paying for employees to get certified in some kind of training. Thus, there's an individual aspect to TQM. What can an individual do to improve and grow? That's a question that can be asked in TQM. By providing solutions to this question and allowing for the employee to grow, the organization will theoretically grow. Okay? So that's, in a nutshell, what TQM is. Now, let's move on to CQI. Recall that CQI is actually a part of TQM, but CQI involves data collection, team involvement, customer satisfaction. Now, recall TQM involves processes, improvement, and customer satisfaction. So both have the end goal of customer satisfaction. The difference is that CQI includes data collection and team involvement. Now, because of these factors, it is said that CQI focuses more on the organization rather than the individual. Now, recall in TQM, the organization is responsible for facilitating and supporting employees' growth which empowers them to use their best abilities and improves their weaknesses, right? So our TQM example was management paying for employees to get certified in some kind of training. But in CQM, an example would be an employee providing an in-service training to the organization. It's not something that's helping the individual grow per se, Instead, it's helping the organization grow. In other words, TQM is more focused on individual growth than CQI. However, both ultimately want to increase customer satisfaction. Now, there is a lot to discuss when it comes to TQM and CQI, there are month-long training courses that are dedicated to these concepts. However, we're focusing on how we specifically distinguish between the two and really the very, very specific things that you'll need to know for your dietetic exam rather than doing a deep dive into it because it wouldn't be as relevant to you for your dietetic exam aside from the things that we just highlighted. With that being said, let's revisit our question. Which of the following is most associated with focusing on the organization instead of the individual and is also more focused on team involvement and data collection? A. TQM B. CQI C. 
none of the choices listed. D, both TQM and CQI. Now in TQM, management is responsible for making sure employees are growing. Thus, there's an individual aspect to TQM. In CQI, it focuses more on the organization rather than the individual. So our first clue is that the answer looks like it could be CQI or both TQM and CQI. But let's continue. TQM focuses on processes, improvement, and customer satisfaction. CQI focuses on data collection, team involvement, and customer satisfaction. Thus, the team involvement and data collection mentioned in the question points to CQI as well. Now, one of the answer choices is D, both TQM and CQI. And technically, CQI is a part of TQM. So could that be the answer? No, because the question is asking which of the following is most associated with focusing on the organization instead of the individual and is also more focused on team involvement and data collection. Thus, the question is asking to distinguish between TQM and CQI. If the question didn't say most associated and instead it said which of the following is associated, then the answer would be both TQM and CQI because CQI is a part of TQM. Since the question is asking most, the answer is CQI. So on your dietetic exams, be very particular with how you analyze the question and words like most and best and things of that nature, they can really dictate what the true correct answer of the question is. So trying to give you practice with that. So definitely be mindful of terminology like that. Okay, now let's move on to our next topic, which is going to be assets versus liabilities. Let's go to our appetizer question. Okay. Which of the following could be considered a current liability? A. Inventory. B. Equipment. C. Accounts receivable. D. Accounts payable. Okay, so now let's start talking about assets and liabilities. We'll pinpoint our discussion for this episode specifically with assets and liabilities. And if y'all want to hear more about accounting in general, then we can focus more on that in future episodes. Okay, now an asset is anything owned that holds value. Basically, assets put cash in our pockets. 
assets are the things that a business owns which have value and the most obvious assets are things like equipment cash land right so now let's talk about two specific types of assets which are current assets and fixed assets a current asset is either cash or is anything that's likely to be converted into cash within 12 months, within a year. So, for example, inventory. We expect to sell within a year. We most likely wouldn't have inventory, especially in a food service setting, sitting around for longer than a year. That could be considered a current asset. Another one that's an example of a current asset is something called accounts receivable. Now, accounts receivable are basically invoices that we as the business send to the customer telling them that, hey, they haven't paid yet. It means we as the business own the right to collect money for the goods or products we have delivered to the customer. So this will be cash eventually within a year when the customer pays us back. Okay, so that's another example of a current asset. Current assets are bound by that one-year timeline. Now, this is in contrast to something called a fixed asset. A fixed asset is an asset that will likely not be turned into cash within a year. It'll miss the deadline, basically. These are more long-term than current assets. So, for example, things like equipment is considered a fixed asset because we expect that the equipment we buy to last longer than a year especially something like food service equipment, which can be heavy and, and expensive. Because of this, we would assume that this equipment is going to last longer than a year. Or, let's say we have a delivery truck. That's also considered a fixed asset because we expect this truck to last longer than a year. Now, both this equipment and this truck can be turned into cash eventually, just like the current assets that we talked about. However, they're much more likely to take a longer time because we're going to be using them for a while, right? A truck and an equipment, that's stuff that we will be continuously using, so we certainly don't want to sell those right away. Now, something specific to fixed assets is a topic called depreciation. Because fixed assets have a much longer life than current assets, like the equipment or the truck that we were talking about, they're predisposed to having natural wear and tear. So they'll lose value over time, a.k.a. 
they'll depreciate over time. Current assets, on the other hand, are generally more short-term, so they won't be affected by this concept called depreciation. All right, so to review, a current asset is cash or something that's likely to be converted into cash within 12 months. And an example of a current asset could be inventory or accounts receivable. This is in contrast to something called a fixed asset, which is not likely to be turned into cash within a year. It's going to take more than likely longer. And examples of a fixed asset include equipment or a food service truck, like what we pointed out to. Okay, now let's talk about liabilities. Liabilities are what the business owes or debts that the business is responsible for. They are generally split into something called a current liability. So it shares that name with the current asset and also something called non-current liabilities. As a business, we are required to pay current liabilities within a year as opposed to non-current liabilities, which we have more wiggle room. We don't have to pay within a year. We can even pay after a year, okay? So just as assets are putting cash into our pockets, liabilities are taking cash away from our pockets. So current liability example could be accounts payable. Now recall in current assets, we talked about accounts receivable. It's essentially the same concept, just reversed. So accounts payable means the bills we are sent from a supplier that we haven't paid yet as the business. We owe money to the supplier. More often than not, the supplier will require that you pay in less than a year's time. So that is a reason why a accounts payable would be considered a current liability because there's usually an expectation that it'll be paid back within a year. Another example is income tax payable. The government charges taxes every fiscal year and you have to make sure that you pay those taxes before the next fiscal year. So that would be another example of a current liability. Now, long-term liabilities are owed after a year. So same concept as current liabilities in that we owe money, but we just have more time to pay it back. Examples could be bonds payable or long-term loans, since they're both designed to give us a longer payback period. Now, let's revisit our question. Which of the following could be considered a current 
liability. A. Inventory. B. Equipment. C. Accounts receivable. D. Accounts payable. So let's break down this question. Liabilities are what the business owes and the organization is responsible for. Current liabilities in general are owed within one year. Looking at our choices, inventory can be considered a current asset because it could likely be converted into cash within 12 months and won't be just sitting around after a year. So we can eliminate that choice. Equipment is considered to be a fixed asset because we expect equipment to last longer than a year, especially something like food service equipment. We could also turn it into cash, but it would be much later than a current asset, and the fixed asset would be subject to depreciation, so it will lose value over time. Thus, equipment can also be eliminated as an answer choice. Now, accounts receivable refers to invoices sent to the customer that they haven't paid yet. It means that we, as the business, as the seller, own the right to collect money for the goods or products we have delivered. Accounts receivable is typically paid back within a year, so it is considered a current asset. Now, accounts payable means the bills we are sent from a supplier that we, the business, haven't paid yet. We owe money to the supplier. More often than not, the supplier will require that we pay in less than a year's time. Therefore, this is the correct answer. Accounts payable. All right, that's a wrap for today's episode. Remember to check us out on chompdowndietetics.com where we have our program that covers all relevant topics on the RD exam with video lectures and colorful notes. You can also hit us up on our socials, which are listed in the episode descriptions. And this is where you can request topics and just let us know how you're doing with your exam journeys. With that being said, I will catch you later. Bye-bye.